Good morning, guys. Great to see you. It's great to be here. What a wonderful Mother's Day, isn't it? It's so rainy and cold. You couldn't have asked for better weather on a Mother's Day. <laughs> yeah, 80 degree weather all week with thunderstorms, and then Mother's Day comes, it's 50 degrees. I don't understand. Somebody pray to God about this. Happy to be here. My name is Preston. For those of you who are new or maybe visiting us for Mother's Day, I am the student pastor here at Forest Park. I have the privilege and honor of working with our 6th through 12th graders on a weekly basis. I love them very much. In fact, we have two students serving today. They serve all the time. Jordan's on camera one in the back. You can clap for him. <laughs> we have Jeremiah who was on camera too. He's on the stage. You clap for him too. That way he feels included. Our students serve all over the campus, and I'm glad that they set that example for us. They're a blessing to me. Uh, we are in week three of our Fresh Faith series. This whole series is really about the faith crisis that you and I and people around the world are experiencing because of the pandemic. We've taught a lot over the last two years as a church about how the pandemic has affected our relationships. It's affected our mental health, our emotional health. But I really want to dig in in this series into how we produce and gain back a fresh faith that we've kind of lost because of the pandemic. Uh, in week one, I talked about if we want to create fresh faith, we have to look at the theology or the topic of the kingdom of God. And I talked about how that can be so scary because the kingdom of God doesn't make sense to us, but really simply put, the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over you and I and our lives, that God is a personal God. And because God created the world and everything in it, the ways he directs us and the paths he directs us to follow are actually meant to bring us human flourishing. We're supposed to flourish and thrive as we pursue what God told us to pursue. And when we pursue wide paths that God tells us to stay away from, it leads to destruction. And then last week, Scott talked about the kingdom of God and who is the king. He talked about Jesus being the king of the kingdom, that in this world today, we have so many pictures of who, who Jesus is. We see him as a cosmic vending machine, a firefighter, a heavenly cheerleader. But the truest picture of who God is and who Jesus is in the Bible is a king and a suffering king who would lay his life down on the cross for his people. And so today in week three, we're going to look at this question. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom, then what are his citizens like and who are they? So if you want to paint a picture of what you know about kingdoms in a, in a real sense, I always go back to Lord of the Rings for some reason when I think about kingdoms. Um, but you know, a king in his castle and his throne and below him is the village where all the citizens live. So the question is, if Jesus is the king, then who are his citizens? What kind of people are they? What are they like? And that's what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, you know, the topic that we're talking about today, I put this on my Facebook a couple of days ago when I was promoting the kind of today's service. The topic we're gonna to talk about today is in my opinion, uh, the kind of centerpiece of creating fresh faith. So in my opinion, if we get this right today, your faith is going to grow faster than you could ever imagine. There's no doubt about it. But if we get this wrong, I'll tell you, your faith is gonna do nothing but wither away. So today's topic to me is all about identity. Identity is simply defined as how do you define yourself? In a easier way to understand it, the question of today is who are you? Any Who fans, CSI, I love that song. Who are you? How would you answer that question? And really, if we're honest, how I would answer that question depends on who's asking the question, right? If you work in a corporation and someone from the higher up offices is visiting and is talking to some of the uh, employees and he comes up to you and says, who are you? You may be tempted to respond, well, my name is such and such. I work in accounting. I'm in the accounting department here. Or if you go visit family that you see maybe once every five years and your grandma hasn't seen you since you were like two months old, she'd be like, who are you? And you may be, be like, I'm so-and-so's son. I'm so-and-so's daughter. So who asks us the question depends on how we answer it. 
But today we're gonna look at the question, who are we to God? And, and what I know is this question or this identity crisis, as I call it, trying to figure out who we are, is something that all of us struggle with. In fact, I struggle with it. And it's something that we struggle with, I believe, since the beginning of our life. Let's just go through kind of what it looks like, right? If you were born, you were either born a firstborn, a middle child, a baby, or maybe even a single, like you're the only child. And that kind of somewhat defines your path in a lot of ways. Psychology would say if you're a firstborn, typically you tend to take on more responsibility. You become the example, you become the rule follower, you somewhat babysit your younger siblings. If you're the baby, you literally get away with everything. Mommy and daddy see no wrong in you, you're a perfect little angel, you can get whatever you want. All the babies in the room with their moms sitting next to them are amen and you're right, you get away with whatever you want and then there's the middle child who's just like, I just wish someone would know I'm here. It feels like they're all focused on the baby or the oldest but I'm kind of in the middle getting overlooked. And then you grow up, you go to school, and you start to define yourself based on certain things. Maybe you were the chubby kid. I was the chubby kid in elementary school. Maybe you were athletic. Maybe you were great at sports. I'm the athlete. Maybe you were artsy or nerdy. You kind of were into drawing or into coloring or into tech, and you were kind of the nerdy kid. Then you go into junior high. In junior high, you think things that never mattered now matter more than ever. The way you dress, what kind of clothes you wear, the way you smell, the way you do your hair, who you hang out with, who you don't hang out, what activities you participate in, what activities you don't participate in, all seem to put you in a definition of who you are. And so we try to figure out, gosh, and I don't even know wearing Walmart brand shirts were terrible until these people started picking on me. And so we realized that our identity is found in a lot of things we never thought they would be. And then we graduate, right? And we go to college and we have a whole new set of questions because college is the time to reinvent ourselves. We can become whoever we want, especially if we move away to go to college. And the questions get a little deeper. What degree will I pursue? What career will I have? How will I spend the next four years? Will I be the guy who's putting my nose in the books and always studying? Will I be the guy who parties, doesn't party? drinks, doesn't drink, sleeps around, doesn't sleep around? Uh, do I take this seriously? Do I go to church? Do I not? Eventually you graduate and then the world apparently at 21 de deems that you're an adult now. So you have to figure out how to be an adult. You start asking even harder questions. How will I get a job? How will I make enough money? Will I be single the rest of my life? And eventually you get a job in your field, you start making some money and you get married and you walk into a marriage saying, the woman that I'm marrying is gonna help me figure out who I am. And then the woman comes in with the same attitude. This man is gonna help complete me, Jerry Maguire, the biggest lie in the world. I'm gonna come in and help you figure out who you are. And you find out that you're both messed up and you both have issues and marriage is a lot harder than we thought it was. But then you have a kid and the kid becomes the centerpiece in the whole existence of your, your being. You revolve your whole life around your kid. The kid determines when you sleep, if you sleep at all, what you eat, if you eat at all, how you spend money, if you have money left over at all after you buy diapers. And then if you have a vacation or you don't have a vacation, but as time goes on, you realize that your kid grows up, they eventually leave the house either for college or to pursue a career. And now you're empty nesters and now you find yourself being left with a husband or a wife that you at one time really knew intimately, but now that it's just you two in the house alone, you start to fight more and more. You begin to frustrate each other more and more. You begin to somewhat grow resentful or grow apart, or you feel like there's no real connection like there was when you first got married. And all of a sudden you fight more and more, and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're in the middle of signing divorce papers. And then now you're alone. Spent your whole life chasing a career, chasing a relationship just for 25 years of marriage to go down the drain and you find yourself alone again and you ask the same question, 
Who am I? Truly, who am I? All those questions I just went through or all those scenarios is typically how you and I put our identity or how we define ourselves. But I wanna show you today that those things are terrible places to put your identity in because all of those things fail us. All of those things leave. All of those things change. And Jesus would say it's like building a house on sand that it's gonna shift, it's gonna wave. When the weather comes, it's gonna destroy it. But we should start to put our identity and our purpose in a firm foundation. And today that's my goal is to teach us about our identity in Christ, but teach us where it comes from. And more importantly, as we end the service today, how God sees you as his person. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope that you hear this because this is really where I'm, I'm coming from with everything else for the rest of the service. The number one thing you should know about your identity as a Christian is this, that your identity is something that's received, not achieved. In other words, who you are is something that is freely given to you, not something that you've earned. Let's go to the first book in the Bible, and even more so, the first chapter of the Bible. You guys should know this story, I'm sure. God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That phrase image of God or God's image is all throughout those couple of verses. And we may be asking ourselves the question, what does that even mean? And I could give you a 30 minute theological lecture on what the image of God is and bore you to death to the point you fall asleep. But instead, simply put very quickly, the image of God just means that as human beings, you and I have an intrinsic value that is higher than any other thing in this universe that we are the apple of God's eye, that in a real way, you and I reflect what God is like to the people and the universe around us, that we have an intrinsic value above the rest of creation. And that can often come across very arrogant as I, as I say that, right? Humans are more important than everything else. Yes, they really are. They bear the image of God. And here's how I know, and this is a very hypothetical scenario. People laughed at me because it was kind of ridiculous last service. So please don't laugh at me. I'm sensitive, um, but just go with me on this. The typical American household has a wife, a husband, two and a half children, and at least one pet. For some of you, your pet may be a snake. For some of it may be a cat, maybe a dog, depending on what kind of animal you like. That's the typical American household. Let's say your household fell on some very tough financial times. And someone came to you and they said, Preston, okay, for you to get out of this financial crisis, for you to literally be to survive and pay the bills going forward, one of the people in your household has to go. You have to choose someone in your household to remove in order to financially going forward be stable. And it seems funny because you would say, well, I'll just work another job. Well, I'll just cut back some of the subscriptions I have, but go along with me. If you were really forced to choose your wife, one of your kids, or the dog to leave your house to save finances, who are we choosing? Right? Because we know that we wouldn't choose our wife. We wouldn't choose our children. But here's the funny thing. When it comes to finances, the question isn't even financial. As much as it's about finances, it doesn't really matter about finances. Why? Because if we're trying to save money, then logically speaking, we would say, cut the person who spends the most money. And all the men would say, it's obviously my wife. 
cut the wife. She spends the most money. This makes no, this is an easy one. Rationale says cut the one spending the most. But it's not a question of finances. And in fact, it's not even a question of obedience, right? Because the parents in the room would happily amen me and say, sometimes the dog is more obedient than the children. Sometimes the dog listens a little bit better than my three-year-old. When I say come, they come. When I say sit, they sit. My kid is like talking to a wall sometimes. So we don't make the decision based on who's spending the most money. And in fact, we don't even make the decision based on who's the most obedient. We make the decision because intrinsically, whether you know it or not, the moral compass that is in your heart tells you that humans bear more value than a dog. And that human beings bear that image of God and they are more valuable and precious than that of a golden retriever. As much as we love animals, as much as we may love our pets, we know if push came to shove, who we're choosing. This is why John would say this in this verse. This is a very simple verse. In fact, it's the verse I'm gonna be kind of resting the rest of the sermon on today. Your primary identity that I would tell you today and how you should define yourself as a Christ follower is found in 1 John 3.1. Here's what John says. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And we are. You are a child of God. We just finished singing about it, that you're no longer a slave, but you are defined and marked by your identity as a child of the King. A child of the King. And in fact, that title child is not something that is we achieve, but it's something that is given to us. Being a child of God is not something you earn, but something freely given to you. Let me put it in a more simple term for some of us so we can understand how that's not achieved, but received. For those of you who may have been in the hospital room when your wife was giving birth to your first child or second child, or maybe you would be like me and not want to be in at all, but the nurse comes to you with your newborn baby son and he hands him to you in your hands and she says, here is your son. We don't in response to the nurse say, maybe one day he'll be. Maybe one day when he makes enough money, he'll be my son. Maybe one day when he marries the right woman that I'm proud that he's married to, he'll be my son. Maybe if he listens good enough in his childhood, I'll call him my son. Maybe if he goes to the right college and is in a certain tax bracket and maybe can pay me back for all the years that I'm spending money on him, then I'll call him my son. We don't do that. And in fact, I said this first service, if you did that, like I'm a pastor, but like I should slap you. Like that's terrible parenting. Like that is just a terrible way to parent. We don't do that. In fact, your child has barely breathed its first breath on its own. And when put in your hands, you look at that child and you say, you are my son and I am your father and you are mine and I am yours completely. Why? Because being a child of God is not something that you work hard to earn. It is something that is freely given to you because of who you are. This is our identity, children of the king of the universe. We looked at just a second ago, God spoke that over Adam and Eve when he created them. He said, you are the image bearers. You are my children. You are my representatives. You are mine. I am yours. He said that in Genesis 1. But you know the story. In Genesis 3, what happens? Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals and the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? 
Notice he didn't make a statement, he asked a question. Did God really say? And make them question it. You can't eat from the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. They go on to say, there we go. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for fruit and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In your life, every second of every day, there's one of two voices talking to you every thought you have, every feeling you experience, someone is trying to talk to you. There's only two sources. You either have the voice of God talking to you or you have the voice of the enemy talking to you. And it's so important if you're gonna create fresh faith that you understand who's saying what to you. We have to learn to stop and ask the question, who said that? It's like playing a game of Marco Polo. If you have a pool, you know this game. Someone closes their eyes and says, Marco, the other person responds, Polo, your, your job is to go and tag the person. It's a very simple game if it's just you and your friend alone in the pool playing. There's no noise. You can hear clearly where they're at. You can kind of turn around and make your decision. That game is extremely hard though if you're in a pool with like 20 teenagers and they're all laughing at you because you ran into the wall. They're all trying to play along even though they're not a part of the game. They're trying to throw you off. It's extremely hard. And so too is it with your faith. It's extremely hard to know what's truth and what's a lie when there's multiple voices talking to you at once. So if we want to know, is this from God or is this from the enemy? We must learn to slow down and say, who said that? Let me give you just a couple of examples. Some of you have had dreams since you were a kid and you wanted to pursue a certain career in education. After high school, you had your list of five schools you wanted to get into, got rejected by all of them. You settled for a community college or a six option. You got your degree. You got out of school hoping to start a job in your career just to find out your job field wasn't hiring right now. So you had to settle for a part-time job. You look at all your friends. They're thriving. They're succeeding. They're making loads of money. They're already married. They're on their first child. They live in a beautiful home. They seem to have it all together while you're working a part-time job just trying to find money. And in those moments, you will hear a voice come into your head, not an audible one, but you'll think these things and you'll feel these things. And someone may even have the guts to look you in the face and say these things. You'll hear, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And in those moments, you must learn to stop and say, who said that? Was it God or the enemy? Some of you met the love of your life in high school and you married them right out of high school and you've been married for a couple years and you realize the marriage really is a battle. It's tough. It's, it, it can be exhausting at times. And after two years, three years, you realize that you guys just weren't meant to be. You were growing apart. You tried to work through issues. You went to counseling. It didn't seem to help. And now you're signing divorce papers and you look around and your friends are happily married for 20 years. They have children. Everything's grand in their life. And you will hear a voice in your head and you will feel something in your heart that tells you this, I'm unlovable. And in those moments when you think that, when you hear that, when you feel that, you must stop and say, who said that? God or the enemy? Some of us have done everything for our kids. 
As a mother, you've sacrificed more than you ever thought you could for someone. You've worked double jobs, some of you single mothers, just to pay the bills. You've loved, you supported, you encouraged, you pushed, you did everything you could to create what you thought was the right way in raising a child. They leave the house to go to college and then they barely text or call you twice a year. Maybe once on Mother's Day and once at Christmas. And maybe they'll come home for the holidays, maybe they won't. And then eventually they get married and now you're the second most important woman in their life. And all of a sudden you find yourself creating more and more distance. You speak less and less and you begin to wonder, did I do something wrong? Did I upset them? Maybe they were mad at me for the way I raised them. And in those moments, you'll hear a voice saying to you, I'm a bad mother. And in those moments, you must learn to stop and ask, who said that about me? Some of us, we were the good Christian kid, did everything we were ever told. Mom had us in Sunday school, had us in Sunday service every Sunday. We did the best to sit there quietly, do everything we were told like a good little boy, good little girl. We read our Bible as much as we were told to. We prayed as often as we were told to. We went to church and youth group as much as we could. We tried to follow example Jesus left for us to the best of our ability all for us to be now 35 and receive a diagnosis from a doctor we never thought was coming. And in those moments, you will hear a voice, you will feel a feeling, and you will think to yourself, God doesn't love me. And you must stop and ask the question, who said that? And here's why, because if you do not take time to check the source, you will automatically believe everything you think, everything you feel, and everything you hear. And not everything you feel, not everything you think, and not everything you hear is from God. And if you want to create fresh faith, and if you want to know your identity, and you want to grow, you must identify the sources of these statements. Because if we don't, don't be surprised when you wake up one day and you feel far from God because you've listened to the voice of the enemy without checking the source. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. God had already told them, you're loved, you're mine, you bear my image. But soon after the question, did God really say that, shook them to their core and they stopped believing what they had been spoken over. So today I wanna give us three points about our identity in Christ and I won't spend too much time on them, but they're gonna tell us who we are in Christ and I think it's so important we understand these together. The first one may very well be the most important one today and it's the thing I hope that you take away. Your identity is rooted in Jesus, which means there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you have done and there's nothing you will do that could shake God's love for you. When you choose to define yourself based on not what you did, but what Jesus did for you, you will realize that you are seen. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your mess. He doesn't see your successes. He doesn't see your state of your mental health. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he sees perfection and he sees child of mine. Paul would say this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith for the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In God's kingdom, your primary identity is that I am one with Christ. I am Jesus. The gospel tells us that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love and there's nothing you can do to lose it. That love for you is built on a bedrock, a foundation of Christ in the gospel that is never changing. Like I said earlier, when we choose to root our identity in a sturdy foundation, one that never wavers, never changes, never uh, shifts, no matter how well you behave, no matter how much you come to church, no matter how much you pray, you can know if you placed your faith in Jesus that your identity is rooted and secure forever. That's why the author of Hebrews would say in, 
Hebrews 13, 7, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Meaning that you don't have to worry that if you mess up, that the next day you're gonna wake up and God's gonna hate you for your mistake. God loves you because you have chosen to root your identity in who you are in the gospel. Not in what I say and not what the world says, but you've rooted who you are and define yourself based on the gospel work of Jesus Christ. And this is the great news that we have as Christians that we celebrate every Sunday, that Jesus has given me everything I need and now I need nothing more but to know that I am rested and secured in the gospel. God's love for you is not dependent on a thing, but it's freely given to you in Christ. That's number one. Number two is this. Your identity gives you access to God in a way that you can never have before you knew Christ, in a way that no one else can. If I wanted to meet with the mayor of Elizabeth City, whoever that may be by the end of 2022, I could email, I could call, I could be patient and wait. In fact, I know some people who are in the political game that could possibly get me a meeting with them if I wanted to meet with them so badly. There are connections I have, ways I can get up with them. The town's small enough, it's not Raleigh or Charlotte. But if I wanted to meet with the president of the United States, that's a lot harder. I can email every day, I can call every day, I could even try to see if I have connections that high, which I really don't. But the truth is the president's not meeting with me. I don't have enough value. I don't have anything important to say and I'm not worth that kind of time. And we see that having access to a higher official, a higher figure feels like we can't speak with them. And if we're not careful, we take that same attitude into the God of the universe. We begin to think the God of the universe is so big, so grand, so mighty, so much holier than I am, so much more perfect than I am, that we begin to believe that we can't have access to that kind of God because he's just so much better than you and I. But the great news is that that's not the God that we serve. In fact, if we go back to the analogy of an actual earthly kingdom with kings and queens that I was saying earlier, if you've watched any kind of thing, like I said, Lord of the Rings, you know that if a citizen comes into the throne room before the king, they're usually there for one of two reasons. They've really messed up, and unless they can come up with a good reason, they're about to die. Or number two, they have to make a request before the king. And I've seen enough movies to know that there's kind of a political game when you come to the king. You have to come with fear and trembling. You have to be afraid. You have to say, oh, holy king, perfect king of the land. How great are you? We love you. Would you please bend your ear towards mine and hear what I have to say? And they kind of want to make sure they don't say anything that could offend them because it could really mess up everything and they could be executed on the spot if they make the king angry. And the great thing is that the Bible says the way we approach God is completely different than that. Hebrews 4.16 says this, therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We can enter into God's presence with boldness. The kind of boldness that says, I'm here. I need to tell you what's going on. We don't have to play the fear and trembling political game of trying to make God like us so he'll answer our prayers. In fact, we're so often to believe if we come to God with a minuscule prayer that he doesn't have time for it. Dude, I've got bigger fish to fry than your little issue. And we may believe God gets annoyed when we come into his presence and ask things for him. That somehow he's too busy for us, that we kind of annoy God when we bring our stuff before him. And maybe it's not that big of a deal, but I'm hurting. And the reason we feel that way is because if we're not careful, we only Listen, only see God as a king. God is a king, but God is not only a king. God is our father. 
And just like the mothers in the room, if your child were to come to you and they know that you love them and you have their best interest at heart, they can come to you with boldness and ask anything, even if it's, even if it's a dumb request. And they know that you're gonna respond not in judgment, but with mercy and grace. Why? Because you love them. And they know that even if your answer is no, it's no for a reason. It's no because I'm trying to save you from something. It's no because there's a better option out there. And so when we enter into God's presence through prayer, we have to remember that we, when God looks at us, he doesn't see a citizen of his kingdom. He sees his child. He sees a child who wants to talk with their father, who wants to come before their father and say, I don't understand these things. In fact, I would tell you that some of my best prayers and some of the most impactful prayers I've ever prayed were when I came into God's presence and I was totally blunt and honest with them. When I came into God's presence and I said, listen, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. In fact, I'm completely enraged right now. I don't understand. I'm depressed. I'm supposed to be preaching the good news, but even I'm struggling to believe that you're good right now. I'm doubting. Are you here? Are you even listening to me? Do you understand what's going on in my life? Are you even involved? Because right now it feels like you're not listening. It feels like you're not understanding. It feels like you don't care. And when I come into prayer with God that way, I'm doing it for two reasons. One, because God can handle my junk. God can handle my emotions. And two, because I know the God I serve is going to meet me, not with judgment. How dare you question me, throw a lightning bolt down and zap me. God's going to meet me with grace. He's going to meet me with mercy. And he's going to look at me in those frustrating times and say, Preston, I understand. I know it hurts. I know it sucks. I know you're walking through a season right now. I know you're depressed. I know you're hurting. But listen, I have something better for you. I'm with you in this. I'm beside you in the fire. I'm walking with you through this. Know that I am with you. Know that I love you. Know that I wouldn't lead you into anything that I'm not gonna bring you out of and know that I am your God and I'm with you forever and ever. And in those moments, I'm quietly reminded of how good God is and how God sees me, not as a citizen that should follow in line with his rules and reigns, but as a child that he loves and cares for deeply. And in the same way are you, God looks at you and sees a child. He's never too busy, never too angry, not scared of your junk. You have access to God in a way that no one else can have access to God. Use it, come before him, make your request known. Know that if you seek, you will find and God will open those doors. And sometimes he's gonna close some too, but know it's for a reason. So number one, our identity is rooted in the gospel. We have to understand that Christ is our identity. And then number two, we have to understand our identity gives us access to God in a way that no other thing or no other person can. And then number three, and lastly, this is where I'll spend the rest of my time, your identity in Christ produces fresh faith. We may be listening to this and say, Preston, that sounds a little cool. Like I know that God loves me and he sees me as a child, but what does that have to really do with my doubt? with my faith crisis. If I'm honest with you, pastor, the only reason I'm here is because my daughter invited me. And to be honest, I'm kind of burnt out on church. I'm kind of burnt out on God. I don't even know if he loves me. I'm really struggling today. What does knowing who I am and who God says I am have to do with my faith crisis and my doubt? And I would humbly put before you that your identity in Christ has everything to do with your faith crisis. I'll let Jeremy treat in his quote, say it in a better way than I ever could. He's the author of Seek First. Scott mentioned it last week when he picked on me. It's a great book. I would encourage you if you can read 
or you like to read, that you pick up this book. It's a great book on learning about what I'm talking about. He says this, almost every other religion in the world says that change is becoming what you're not. If you're not pure, become pure. If you're selfish, become selfless. But Christianity says something different. Be who you are already in Jesus. He goes on to say, in Christ you are pure, so live purely. You are a light, so let your light shine. Look at this, because of grace, my identity is built not on what I do for God, but what on, on what he has already done for me. Christian growth is not a matter of changing into something you're not, but it's about becoming who you truly are in Jesus. The church, and by the church, I mean the universal church, churches all over the world, and unfortunately I've been guilty of this too, have got this so wrong so many times. We come in and we look before you and we say, you're disobeying God, so obey. Hey, you're, you're acting this way, don't act that way. Instead, what I wanna put before you today is that in Christ, God looks at you and he sees loved, forgiven, accepted. And when you believe that, you will act as if you were beloved, forgiven and accepted. You won't have to be told and guilt tripped from a pastor on stage that you should live a different way. You will live into your identity. You will walk as if you already are those things. You won't have shame. You won't be ashamed of your life. You'll know, man, God says I'm pure, so I'm gonna live as if I'm pure. The Christian message is not about becoming what you're not, but becoming who you already are in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul would say this in Galatians 4, 7. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. You are a co-heir with Christ. God sees you not as a slave. You don't have to live as a slave entangled by your addictions and by your traps of life, but you can live as a son, free, accepted, knowing that God looks at you and sees you for who he says you are, not who you say you are. One of the things I wanna do before we end now um, is if we're not careful, every one of us has to admit, whether we like it or not, including myself, that we walked in today wearing some labels. There may be labels that we put on ourselves. There may be labels that others have put on us. It may be labels that somehow we just adopted. But everyone today is wearing a label if we're not careful. I wanna go just through a couple of examples and show you why they're important as we close. Some of us in the past two years have been laid off from our jobs. We had careers, we were close to retirement and all of a sudden because of COVID, we lost our jobs. Maybe some of us had dreams and we failed miserably at them. Maybe we wanted to get into a certain career, a certain job or certain college and we got a rejection letter. And we look around, like I said, and we see everyone thriving, everyone succeeding and we begin to believe the lie that we're a failure. So what happens? We begin to label ourselves that way. I'm a failure. So everything you do, everywhere you go, you carry this label around and you define yourself as a failure. When you get another job and someone criticizes you or offers critique, you don't take it and learn from it. You take it personally. You get anxious, you get angry, even though they're nice about it. Hey, listen, I know you were supposed to get the report in by Friday, but you got it in Saturday. Listen, I need you to stick to your deadlines. You take it and you run with it, it's personal. Now you're anxious, now you're angry, you're always worried you're gonna lose your job again. So everywhere you go, you take in the mindset, I'm a failure so I shouldn't expect to succeed at anything I try. And you live as a failure because you believe you're a failure. Some of us had the love of our lives and after years, 
of what a man or a woman we thought we were deeply in love with. We wake up and realize we've grown apart. We don't spend time together. When we finally wake up and our child's gone, like I said before, we finally realize we maybe should go separate ways. We divorce, we separate, we go different paths. And then we begin to believe something about ourselves I said earlier. We begin to believe the lie that we are unlovable. So we wear the tag and the label unlovable and we carry it around everywhere we go. Then the next relationship we're into with our friendships, with our family, we always believe that we're unlovable. So anytime someone comes to us and says, hey baby, I love you, but could you put your phone away? I just wanna spend time with you. You take it super personally. Anytime she's, your wife or your husband says, hey, we haven't had dinner together in a while. Man, we've been so crazy, so busy. Can you just take work off tomorrow? Can we just go out for lunch and just spend the day together? You, you take it personally and you begin to believe the lie that you're unlovable, so you act unlovable. You begin to say to yourself things like, they must not love me. Or they forgot that to, yesterday was our anniversary. They must not love me. They, you believe the lie that you're not worthy of love, that somehow you're so big of a mess that no one could ever love you, that you're not worthy of it. And everywhere you go, every relationship you walk into, you carry the label unlovable and you act as if you are unlovable. And it brings out insecurities and it brings out anxieties. In a more deeper way, in a very real way, in a heavy way, maybe some of us have been through the tragedy of abuse. And we were in a relationship with someone that maybe domestically abused us. And you were told a lie and you believed a lie that somehow your words or your actions were the reason they were hitting you. And you believe that you could have controlled the situation better if you would have just kept your mouth shut or you would have acted the way they told you to act. And the reason they're acting the way is because of you. Maybe it wasn't domestic abuse. Maybe it was you were taken advantage of. And by someone you know or someone you don't know. And you were told a lie that the reason you were taken advantage of sexually is because of the way you dressed and because you put yourself in environments where rapists hang out. And you feel guilt and you label yourself broken. And so everything in your life is through the lens of a jaded lens. You trust no person, you have trust issues, you don't know if you'll ever be really able to live in a healthy relationship and you walk around and you live by a tag that you put on yourself as a broken person. Even when you meet someone who genuinely wants to help you heal, genuinely wants to give you space, genuinely wants to love you the way you should be loved, you still operate from the label, I'm broken. I'm a broken person. Not all labels are bad. Some labels are positive. Some of us, if we're honest, none of this makes sense to us because if we're honest, everything I've ever tried in my life, I've succeeded at. Got into the college I wanted to get into, got great grades, got out, went straight into the field I wanted to, made lots of money. Every promotion available, I got it. Every raise I got, I succeeded, and my track record speaks for itself. And if I'm honest, I put the tag on myself that I am self-sufficient. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need anyone else. In fact, why would I need you? My life should be an example of how to work hard and how to achieve everything without anyone's help. And we look at people as below us. We look at them and say, what could someone below me on the flow chart teach me about my job? If they were as good as smart as I am, they'd be where I'm at. And you bring that into your marriages and you bring it into your friendships and you bring it into your churches and you'll say stuff like, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't sin like that. Or I don't sin as much as that person. My life is an example to follow and you have your trophies, you have your bank account, but you have no real connections because everyone around you feels insuperior to you. 
and you talk down to them and you make every conversation about you and now you're left alone with lots of money but no one who really cares for you and you're self-sufficient. These are just a couple of the ways we label ourselves or the world labels us and we wear them everywhere we go and we take them into every relationship and we live as if we are these things. But the hope for you and the hope for me is that does not have to be the case. You can live by what God says you are. These are just some of the ways that God sees you and defines you. I've condensed them. These aren't all of them. In fact, there's loads and loads loads more I could have put on here, but for the sake of space, I, I didn't want to be too small where you can't read it. Here's just some of the ways that God says you are. You are salt of the earth. You're light of the world. You have a purpose. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. You are righteous. You're free. God looks at you and he sees you as a free person that you don't have to be enslaved to the things holding you down anymore. You're a saint. God looks at you as a saint. God looks at you and sees holy and blameless. You are adopted into God's family. You are a part of a family that you feel like you have no business being a part of such a family that's good, but you are adopted into it. You are forgiven. You don't have to have shame about what you did last week or yesterday. God has forgiven you. You are forgiven in his eyes. You are royalty. God looks at you as royalty. Jesus would say, you're a friend of his. You are a friend of Jesus. You are redeemed. You are new. You can live as a new creation. You are an ambassador of God. You are, I love this one, God's masterpiece. That God looks at you as a masterpiece that he created. You are a citizen of heaven. And these are just some of the ways that God defines you as. We all are carrying labels today. I don't know what yours is. I don't know what you're struggling with, but I know we're all struggling. Today, what we need to do is we need to tear off the old labels and we need to put on the new label. All of you who should have listened and grabbed a hello, my name is tag on the way in. um, I want to take the next minute and I want you to choose one of these things that desperately right now, wherever you're at in your life, you need to say, I need to start believing this about myself. It's gonna be different for all of us, but what I want you to do is I want you to choose one of those things and I want you to take a pen. There should be pens in every seat back pocket in front of you, or if you're a woman and have a purse, I know you would have at least one in there. So take out a pen. I want you to choose one or more that you need to start believing about yourself today. And I want you to tear it off and I want you to put it on your chest. And when I pray, I want you to walk out of here and I want it to be a symbol that you're walking out as someone different. You're gonna begin to live the way God says you are not based on who you say you are. Let's just take a minute and do that together.
you can continue to write, um, you know, our identity is the centerpiece of fresh faith because if you don't believe you're forgiven, you won't act as if you're forgiven. But when you begin to believe you're forgiven, your faith has no choice but to grow. You'd be surprised how much brighter your faith seems when you believe these things about yourself. And my goal here today is not some behavior modification. Be forgiven, you should act forgiven. My plea with you and plea with everyone watching online and plea with myself is truly in your heart, believe these things and accept these things and see yourself as these things no matter what you go through or what you deal with. Because here's the truth, your identity is in Christ. All other opinions are secondary. Whatever your mom has said about you, whatever your teacher said about you, whatever your boss has said about you, whatever the world has said about you, heck, what even your pastor has said about you is secondary and should not define you. Christ defines you primarily and firstly and mainly. And when we understand our identity and we believe it and we accept it and we live as if we are what God says we are, I promise you, your faith has no choice but to sprout up and grow, and you'll be so much more grateful for believing the truth of Scripture. God, thank you so much for these people. Thank you that you have given us all that we need in Jesus. Thank you that you have told us exactly who you say we are, God. It's so tough sometimes when we mess up, when we fail, when we're told that we're not these things to believe them. But God, would you help us stop and examine the source God, help us not believe the voice of the enemy. Help us not believe the lies. Help us believe the truth. Help us believe that we're worthy, that we're loved, that we're accepted, that we're holy, that we're blameless, that we're a friend of yours, that we're royalty, that we're ambassadors, that we're masterpieces. Because God, we need to believe it now more than ever. God, help me believe it. Help me believe I'm worthy and I'm forgiven. God, today is Mother's Day and it's such a somber day for some of us. God, I know there are people in here, people watching online that wish they were mothers. I know there are people here and watching online that no longer have a mother for the first time this year. I pray as we dismiss and everyone's enjoying festivities with their family that you would be close to them today. Your word says you're close and comfort the brokenhearted. God, there's some of us that are brokenhearted today and we need your peace. We need your comfort. We need to be reminded who you are and that you are our Father and you love us more than anyone or anything else could. Would you bless us as we go, allow us to celebrate the moms we do have some of us and allow us to do all things for the glory of your name and building up of your kingdom here in Elizabeth City. We pray in your name, amen. Thank you guys, love you guys. Have a beautiful Mother's Day.